0: Oda, 30 feet away, jumper in the air. He's got it! LaVarona has won it for Rhode Island! In traffic, off-balance shot. back down! Jared Terrell and Rhode Island has done it in the final five seconds on a circus shot from Jared Terrell. A career-high night for him and a victory for Rhode Island. up, Dutton. run up. Look out.
1: look out! for Serrano Langevin! Oh, steal by Fats Russell off of Young. Three. Oh! <laughs> oh! Don't do it to him like that, Fats. Dribbles into the forecourt. Iverson going up. he gets. In the words of John Ross, "Team, this is March. And welcome to another episode of the Rory Baseline. I'm joined by my host, Gary, as we get ready for the greatest month. And not just because Gary's and my birthdays are in March but because March Madness is back.
0: I'm just saying, Andrew, it is the first day of the A-10 tournament, and I'm not going to lie to you, you about two months ago, I didn't think we were actually going to get to this point. No, not at all.
1: Not at all. It's been ups and down all throughout college basketball, but the fact that Champ Week is finally here is amazing to see, and I can tell you right now, over the next three to four weeks, there is going to be an Andrew-shaped imprint on my couch. And ESPN and Turner sports are going to be getting a lot of ratings from my house.
0: <laughs> you need to get one of those, uh, those boxes that record you like one of the boxes that get the ratings and they should put one of those in your house. Cause that TV is going to be tuned onto that the whole time. Just saying. <laughs> oh
1: yeah. I've already tried to, I've already tried to figure out how I can manage to get four TVs into my living room. So I can have all four games going on at the same time. It's going to be an interesting view in the Andrew household over the next few weeks.
0: I'm sure you're not the only fan, Andrew. But before we get into this week's episode, make sure to follow us, facebook.com slash Rhodey Baseline, on Twitter, at Rhodey Baseline, and do make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a five-star rating. Those definitely do benefit us. We got a lot to talk about in this week's episode, Uh, a lot of exciting stuff, Andrew, right?
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. I know we got a nice interview with Bill Koch later. We got a game preview here. We're going to talk about the tournament. And for those who are listening, we do have a special surprise for you all. If Gary wants to tell you guys, we can tell you. But I don't know.
0: I think I'm going to save that till the end of the episode to make sure everybody listens to the episode. But, yes, we do have a surprise to release. And you guys listening to the episode, we'll find that out beforehand. But let's get into the Last game of the regular season for URI. URI had a game Saturday, February 27th, against Duquesne at Duquesne. The last regular season game in the A-10 for URI. And URI looking to come out with a win in this game. Unfortunately, the game tells another story, right, Andrew?
1: Oh, absolutely. It was a terrible, terrible game. It, URI was on for, was unfortunately lost to Duquesne, 86-75. to 75 in Duquesne's second game in their new arena. Your just did not look ready to play, did not look prepared to play, but Duquesne came ready to play. Duquesne was shooting the lights out of the ball. Chad Baker came ready to play, shooting three for four from the three at 28 21 points. Uh, they had four guys in double figures with Marcus Weathers manning the paint down there with 28 and 14 Those three guys just destroyed URI and also didn't help that Jeremy Shepard did sprain his ankle in the first half and was unable to play in the second half. But quite frankly, I don't think that really mattered. URI just did not look ready to play. They weren't hitting shots. They shot 41% from the field, 17% from three. But if you're looking for a perk in all of this, they only had eight turnovers this game. I think that's – I know it's in a game that's very hard to find a – Silver lining in this, but the fact that they only turned the ball eight eight times has got to be huge.
0: Yeah, I mean, this team, you got to take the positives out of everything, right? So, obviously, those eight turnovers are great. It benefits us. Obviously, more players did get minutes with Jeremy Shepard being out. And we're going to have a a Jeremy Shepard injury update in our tournament preview later on. Uh, But also, Fats Russell scoring 27 points. And towards the end of the game, it seems like Fats had the ball most of the time trying to get eye back into a game that they were very much out of reach already.
1: Or it was the Kobe Bryant treatment. They realized that they, Fats realized he, they weren't going to win and he just wanted to pad the stats, which I'm completely okay with because, quite frankly, this is a lost season. One stat that did jump out at me, Gary, that is, she was huge in Duquesne pulling away with this game is the fact that they had 10 blocks. That's unheard of. I can't remember the last time I saw a team have 10 blocks in one game that was incredible to just to see. And then them shooting over 50% from the three-point line. You're not going to beat many teams when you're shooting like that. And that Duquesne Arena, that thing looks gorgeous. I know nobody's going to go because Duquesne has terrible fans, but they pulled out all the stops for that new arena.
0: Yeah, just a tough game. URI never got the lead in this game. And unfortunately, does come out with the loss. Uh, 86-75, your final from Pittsburgh. Uh, that putting URI 10-14. and 14 seven and 10 record in the a 10 and blocking them in at 10th place in the a 10, which I mean, tells the story of this season by itself. Just, just a a roller coaster that ends up at 10th in the a 10. Yeah. Like you
1: said, lock them in at the 10 where you or I was projected to finish the sixth in a season that quite frankly, did not go as many of us planned. And we were lucky enough to catch up with the Providence journals, Bill Koch, and we were able to talk about that, the tournament, amongst many other things. And we want to thank Bill for coming out and congratulate him on being the Sports Writer of the Year. And let's throw it to that interview with Bill Koch right now.
0: All right, Rody Baseline fans, we are joined now by uh, Providence Journal reporter, uh, beat reporter for college basketball in general, uh, Bill Koch here on Roadie Baseline. Uh, Bill, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, we've been trying to get you on all year, but I think this is the the perfect time to get you on right close to March Madness. Guys
2: my pleasure uh, honored to be here with you uh, love the podcast love what you guys are doing uh, you know most importantly love your passion for hoops and, and for roadie and that's you know the main reason why I, I agreed to come on with you.
1: And I also want to before we get started congratulate you on becoming the sports Writer of the year again this year I know we've you've been in Providence for a long, as long as I can remember I grew up in Rhode Island and just I've been always following your work and stuff so it, truly congratulations on that one Bill.
2: I appreciate it too kind. Um, you know, I, I just get paid to do something that I love and, and I hope that that comes out. Um, you know, I'm not always the best at it. Uh, I like to think I'm not the worst at it. Um, you know, I just go day by day and you know, try to bring some passion to my work every day. And, and you know, it's nice to be recognized, but that's truly, that's not what I do it for. You know, I work with a great media community in this state. You guys have had several of them on and, and will in the future. Um, you know, I'm just I'm just very fortunate.
0: Now, uh, do you want to tell the fans a little bit about how you got into the pro Joe and kind of on the college basketball beat? Sure. Uh, my job before
2: this, I was at the South County Independent, um, you know, and I was covering locals there. And obviously, you or I, you know, we're bumping into basketball and, and football a little bit there, um, you know, but it's a weekly, so it's a little different. There's no traveling. And so you're doing some home games, but you're not necessarily with the program all the time. You know, I, I ended up going to the Journal when Paul Kenyon retired, uh, who was the longtime URI beat writer for the Journal. Um, you won't meet a nicer person than Paul. Generally, my thinking on Paul Kenyon is: if if you have a problem with Paul Kenyon, it's your problem because he is one of the nicest people you'd ever meet, one, one of the one of the finest gentlemen you you could hope to meet in media or in life. Um, you know, so I stepped into some really big shoes. And trying to replace Paul on this beat. It, it was his for the better part of two decades, I think, maybe a little more. You know, and I, I just tried to do the best I could. Um, tried to continue what I was doing before at the Independent. The only difference was, you know, you're doing it a little more frequently, you're doing some road trips, you're doing some travel. Uh, and it also dovetailed with the fact that, that Dan Hurley was there and you, know, you knew that the program was going to go places with him as the head coach, you know, I knew who he was. I'd read The Miracle of St. Anthony, uh, the great book by Adrian Wojnarowski. So I knew who he was, I knew his family was. Uh, you know, you meet that guy two or three times, you understand what he's about and, and how driven he is, how passionate he is. Um, and so I had a feeling that you or I was going to be successful in, in pretty short order. And, you know, fortunately for me in, in my own career, for selfish purposes, there's nothing better than being able to cover a team that's in the ascendancy, that's competing for a conference championship, going to the NCAA tournament. Um, those occasions are, are fun for the fans. They're fun for us too. Um, you know, so just my last, you know, six or seven years working at the journal, I, I don't even remember how long it's been now. Um, you know, it, It's just been a lot of fun for me.
1: So with that being said, I know I played high school and you, you- high school sports and i noticed that you started covering the red sox you're on their beat now a little bit so what are your before we get into roadie what's some of your uh, best memories of covering the high school and the red sox
2: the best thing about high schools is how much it matters to people you know the fact that like it's still a big deal to see your name in, in the state newspaper um you know you you go to like a soccer championship or a basketball championship or a super bowl and you can walk up and say hi you know i'm from the providence journal and and People can bag on the paper. Yes, we don't have as many subscribers as we did 10, 20 years ago. Yes, you know, media is a lot more divided now in terms of outlets you can go to, whether it's digital, print, whatever it may be. You know, but the name still carries something. And and the fact that you're still around kids and they care so much about what they're doing and representing their communities and, and their towns, you know, you're you're drawn into that, you gravitate to it, it, it makes it fun. Um, you know, the Red Sox team that I grew up rooting for, I'm a Rhode Island guy. So, you know, I, one of my earliest memories in baseball was the 86 World Series. I, I think I was seven years old and I remember my dad came and woke me up in the ninth inning of game six at Shea Stadium.
1: You should have stayed asleep.
2: <laughs> should have, um, you know, but he thought, cause he'd been waiting 68 years at that point. Um, you know, my dad was, he was 30 at the time, um, he woke me up and he said, come on, come on out, watch Red Sox win the World Series. And, and they give it away and lose it uh, and then lose game seven. And, and I just, I remember that being my first baseball memory, uh, you know, but just watching their rise from there, you never necessarily think I'm going to end up covering these guys or, or doing this for a job. Um, you know, my first season was 2018. And they end up winning the World Series and, and I'm sitting there, in Dodger Stadium for game five, you know, watching the Red Sox celebrate on the field. It, oh, it, that's it, was, awesome. it was surreal. You know, and you're, you're trying to do your game story and you're hard on deadline and way past it and your hands are shaking a little bit and you, you know, you, you sit back maybe a half hour later and you think, what did I just do? You know, what did I just watch? How cool was this? So I guess I, I would say that whether it's high schools, college, pros, whatever it is, I, I just try to appreciate what I do and, and stay in the moment. I've gotten to do a lot of great events, um, you know, over the course of my career, and, and I look forward to to each and every one. Whether it's you know a girls' basketball game, a, a field hockey game, um, you know, swimming somewhere, track meet, a Red Sox game, doesn't matter. I'm I'm going to bring the same level of attention, the same level of passion to it.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And coming from a lifelong Burville kid, I, uh, I, I've had my fair share of the pro job there with our football and our hockey being mm-hmm. always going toe to toe with Mount Hendrickson. But, uh, yeah, so we had still, I still have pictures of myself in the paper up on my fridge. My mom keeps them. So yep. that, that definitely rings true.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yep. Andrew Andrew can celebrate those Bill. Unfortunately, I wasn't a, a sports star in high school, so oh, I wasn't, wasn't a...
1: a star. God,
0: <laughs> believe me, neither was I, guys. I was a, a
2: one year football player. I was a golfer. Um, you know, my brother had all the athletic talent in in our family. He was a national champion in baseball in Division three. Wow, that's um, awesome. One year at Eastern Connecticut. He he's the guy. It, it's certainly not. <laughs>
0: All right, so so diving in a little bit on this roadie team, right? The, the one thing that I'll, I'll say, right? So the team looks very good on paper. You know, sure. they do have a lot of transfers that come in. What challenges do you think that this team has had, I would say all year in general, but obviously in the last couple of weeks that have kind of led to uh, getting, you know, 10th place in the A-10 as of this recording on Sunday night?
2: You know, similar to covering the Red Sox in, in 2020, I, I would say that it was a bad year to have a bad year. You know, just mentally, if, if you're not competing right from the start, if you don't feel like you're looking around the locker room, the clubhouse, thinking you have a championship team right from the start, just mentally with what we've all dealt with from the pandemic and, and all the changes that, that we've had to deal with in day-to-day life, it was going to be really, really difficult for, for teams to compete who were on the fringe. You know, if you were a team like St. Louis coming into the year, Richmond coming into the year, you, ex- you were expected to win the league I think that your outlook would have been a lot better than say, you know, Fordham, George Mason, George Washington, where you, you hope, but you don't necessarily believe that, that something good's going to happen. Um, you know, and so I, I look at Rhodey and I think they started out well enough, um, you know, beating Seton Hall early, winning at VCU. You're all the way down to the end with Western Kentucky, who's a really good team who beat Alabama, you know, so, I think, I think you started off well enough. I think losing Makai Mitchell hurts uh, because they know he's a talented guy. And then I think once you get into the league and, and you lose a couple of games that maybe you felt like you shouldn't and you see yourself sort of falling out of contention for a regular season title or, or one of the top two or three spots, I think it's really hard to keep it together. Um, you know, I, I think this year more than any other, you know, mentally the challenge was just different and, you look at these guys and you see Fats Russell playing hurt all year. And you've got a lot of other guys who are transfers who are sort of searching for their role on this team, either this year or going forward. And I just think it was a a, a convergence of a lot of things that has left them here in 10th, uh, you know, barely out of that first day in the a 10 tournament um, and really struggling for direction going forward.
1: Now going off that, I know we can't play the what if game, but if, this team had the experience of a St. Louis or we had this team was the team with Jared Terrell Nisi in their senior year. Do you think that could have played a factor in all this? Or do you just, like, is it mainly because it's a new team?
2: When you have someone in your program, like Jared Terrell, who is the ultimate alpha um, I think your mood is different. Uh, I think he's pulling the rope a little differently than, than some other guys would. Um, you know, that's not to say that that Fats Russell isn't a leader. Um, you know, that's not to say that, you know, there aren't guys on this team who, who are capable of showing leadership qualities. Um, I just think that Jared was a little special, a little different. I, I don't necessarily know if you want to bring him into this. Um, you know, you look at St. Louis or, or somebody like that, you know, even with the, the strong personalities they have, they're still in the middle of the pack. Um, you know, so it hasn't necessarily worked out for them either. Richmond the same. Um, you know, you're bringing back some, some guys who could have grad transferred. Uh, you know, and they've still slipped back a little bit. I, I just think it was it was a really hard, a really strange year. Um, you know, and I think for you or I, I, I don't necessarily know if they ever found an identity, um, a way that they wanted to play, you know, one or two elite strengths that they could lean on when times got tough. Uh, you look at those teams who were winning, uh, who went to the NCAA tournament, they could always lean on the fact that they were going to guard you really, really hard, that they were going to make life really difficult for you, um, that when you saw Rhode Island on the schedule, you didn't feel great about it. You knew that you were going to be bumped and bruised and they were going to be edgy and angry and physical. Um, these guys, I, I look and you know, I think they do a couple things well. I think they have reasonable talent in a couple areas. I just don't necessarily know if they're as consistent with it as some previous winning teams here and and as some other teams in the league who are consistent winners, Um, you know, and I I think that probably works against you when you're trying to mesh so much personnel, if you don't have a defining way to play, a defining characteristic of your game, I I think it makes it doubly difficult.
0: Now, obviously with uh, URI having some, some close games, you know, losing games by, you know, five points, so to say, those games that were at the Ryan center, do you think playing in front of no fans kind of changes the swing so you think that potentially if fans were allowed say at the vcu game where they lost at the end on the bones three do you think that would have made a huge difference not saying that we're looking for excuses but that it would have it would have kind of made a a big impact for this team
2: yeah it doesn't help it 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 hasn't helped any team you know playing at home with no fans Uh, i'm sure that's you know been an obstacle for everybody um you know i would say in in your eyes case would you have won at vcu you've had really good success there and, and with that team uh, in that matchup in particular, but having been to Siegel center two or three times, I know it's different with, with a sellout. Yeah. Yeah, it is. We've, we've, we've been there. We surprise. went there
1: last year. It was nothing like it. Rothstein's tweet is very true. That game, that place gets loud.
2: That that's a different building. Um, you know, Dayton is a different building. I I don't think you would see Dayton in the middle of the pack if if you had UD Arena sold out every night. Um, they certainly wouldn't be the team that they were last year, but I don't think they would have struggled to this extent. You know, certainly not losing at home to LaSalle. I think that was something. You know, that's Dayton's not losing at home to LaSalle in in a sellout crowd. That that's just not happening. There are probably two or three games in a year. Um when you play in a great arena that your crowd can lift you in that way, you know, but there might be two or three games on the road where it swings the opposite way, where you're really battling uphill, you know, really struggling against that energy. I would just say that it was, it was a weird year for everybody in terms of home road, whatever it may be. Uh, You or I lost some home games that that they probably wouldn't have, Um, you know, Providence lost some home games that they probably wouldn't have. Um, They've, they've had a, you know, really good run in the dunk as of late, uh, you know, especially against like ranked teams when they come in there. So, yeah. you know, I, I guess home court still matters. You, you still want to play there. It's generally where you practice. You, you can just get out of bed and, and, you know, walk down to the arena and get some shots up. You're comfortable there. Um, you know, but I would say that that probably over the course of 24, 25 games, it, it probably balances itself out even in empty arenas.
1: Now, as a follow-up to that, getting a little off-topic road here, focusing on the, tournament, the NCAA tournament as a whole, do you think that the lack of fans this year, as somebody who's been in an arena kind of this year, will affect the chance of having a Cinderella team or stuff like that?
2: Good question. I, I would say um, I've been to the NCAA twice in Providence, and I remember uh, when Georgetown lost Ohio in 2010. Uh, I think Georgetown was a three seed. Ohio might have been a 14 seed. It, it was either a 314 or a 215 game. I think it was a 314 game. Georgetown had Greg Monroe. They were really good. Um, that was Greg Monroe's last college game. Ohio had two guys guard named Armand Bassett, who was in, an Indiana transfer, and, and a, a lefty freshman guard named DJ Cooper, who was about 160 pounds soaking wet. Those two guys put 58 points on Georgetown. They, they made a ton of threes. I think they were 13 for 23. Um, but to your question, what I noticed in the second half of that game was the crowd turned against Georgetown, and they were rooting for the dog 100%. Um, you know, you think back to when Florida Gulf Coast won in the NCAA tournament as a 15 seed. I think that game was in Philadelphia at Wells Fargo. You look at the highlights in the second half. That was not a neutral floor. Those people were behind the dog, 100%. They wanted Florida Gulf Coast to win that game. Um, you know, so I do think that does matter uh, from the standpoint that the favorite could get a little tight and the underdog could get a little boost. Um, I also think that you know, in past years, you've had one seeds maybe grouped closer to their campus, whether it's in whatever region, you try to put them a little closer. Um, The Power Fives tend to travel a little better than than maybe the mid-majors because they have bigger alumni bases, richer alumni bases. Uh, So maybe it balances out in the Sweet 16 in the Elite Eight if a really good mid-major like Loyola Chicago can get through or Drake. You know, if someone like that can make a Sweet 16, are they not having to play North Carolina in Raleigh? You know, something like that. Right. Um, you know, they're not having to play Gonzaga in Seattle. Um, you know, you're playing them in a, a sort of antiseptic environment where you can just go out and play your game. And you don't need to worry about the fact that you only have 3,000 undergrads at your school and you only have 15,000 alumni in your school's history. And not many of them are going to be able to make it to the game in a dome stadium, um, you know, or an NBA arena. So I think maybe later in the tournament, you could see if, if some of the Cinderella's can get through the first two rounds, they might have a little fairer shake, a, a little more neutral chance.
1: That'd be awesome to see because that was one of my biggest fears going into this tournament was the fear of not having a Cinderella. And I know URI is not in it. I still got a, I still got a horse in the, in the barn this year because I'm a Michigan fan too as well. But I love, I love nothing more than Cinderella teams, and I was hoping, still hoping that we get a few of those this year.
0: It's possible. I, I think that it's going to be. It's gonna be a different NCAA tournament. I think we we don't know what's gonna happen, and I am. Um, I think the the concern that a lot of people have is more about the teams going on COVID pause and kind of getting kicked out at the last second. Like that's sure. the. I feel like that's the the concern that I would be worried about. Um, similarly to news that we're gonna talk about later in this uh, that that came out today. Uh, now going back to Rody, um, obviously we chatted a little bit about the problems that they're having. Um, I do want to bring up. So we did have Maury uh, Hirschhorn on our show a couple of weeks ago. Talking about Maury's article about the rotation, I would like to get your thoughts on URI's rotation and if you think that the rotation should be shortened or kind of changed in a little way to to benefit us, and uh, especially with a ten seed coming in playing a very difficult road to the A ten championship.
2: Well, let, let's go back even further than that. Let's go back, you know, about twelve months. And in an ideal world, if you're a URI fan, Tyrese Martin and Jacob Toppin are still here. I uh, think and, of that, and, and a lot of this player movement doesn't happen. Your roster, your rotations, the way you play this season are completely different. Um, you know, and I, I think I think what's happened this year, I think you trace it all the way back to there. Uh, last offseason, the amount of player movement they had, uh, the amount of reshuffling that they had to do coming into this year, uh, in the midst of a pandemic. With, with a summer that wasn't conventional, um, you know, with a run-up to this practice time that wasn't conventional. Uh, it was not a good year to, to try to incorporate so many different players at this level. Um, you know, somebody like Bryant, you, you had, you had nine new players, but a lot of those guys were stepping down from a level above Peter Kiss is coming from Rutgers. Um, Rutgers is, is better than the NEC, uh, you know, you, you have at Rhodey you've got a couple guys trying to step up in class, Alan Beatran and Malik Martin. Um, you know, the Mitchell twins didn't really play very much at Maryland, uh, and you only saw Makai for six or seven games here. Um, you know, so you're making a lot of changes over a 12-month period. You're trying to go into an A-10 that is reasonably veteran, that you felt like teams would be reasonably good and, and pretty established. And you're doing it with your best player hurt for most of the year, Fats Russell. He, he's never been right this season. I know he had a hamstring injury in the offseason and you know obviously hurts his ankle, hurts his foot early in the year uh, and adds a core muscle injury on the way. You didn't get the version of Fats that you had through the first 23 games of last year. You probably needed that guy to max out this year. I think that guy from the first 23 games last year, I think the other guys around that guy look a lot different on this team, um, because that guy was electric, right? That guy could dominate the game all by himself. This guy, if he's a half step slower, if you take even that little bit of his quickness, he's just a small guy in a big man's sport. It's very difficult for him to be as influential as he can be when he's full speed. So I think that makes a difference. Um, you know, but in terms of their rotation, uh, yeah I, I think I think if you look around at most good teams, you look at Saint Bonaventure who won this league, they're not going much deeper than seven or eight guys. Um, you know, in a given year, Providence doesn't go much deeper than seven or eight guys. They've been in six out of the last seven NCAA tournaments, so they would have been. Um, you know, I, I think more importantly, when you shorten your rotation, it allows for role definition. It allows for guys to get a feeling of what their responsibilities are. and, and I think, The most important part of management in any job, whether it's coaching, as an executive, whatever it may be, is putting your players or your employees in the best possible position to succeed. And I think a lot of that is down to knowing what their abilities are and maximizing those. And and I think when you play nine or 10 guys and you're trying to commit to that, unless those nine or 10 guys are, are really elite or have really high basketball IQ or are just physically freaky, in some way, I just think you're leaving a lot of margin for error. It's really difficult to develop chemistry in that.
1: I think that's a great point that you bring up and leads me to a follow up about I know second half excluded from the game against Duquesne last night, but how and it's maybe it's not just Jalen Carey in particular, but what are your feelings on that him only playing three minutes like in the first half, sitting the first 16 minutes of the game? coming in and and last night wasn't the first time that happened it's happened a few times and Jalen Carey's is not just the only player i just feel you can't get enough you can't give him enough boost to get him ready or it hurts with what you've already had because you already just made a run before he came in in the first half last night and i just it's one thing that's bothered me throughout this year with the coaching staff and that
2: i think you know a lot of times on winning teams it's very easy to figure out who the guys are who should be playing Um, you know, the first five or six or seven guys are obvious. Uh, You know, if you think of URI's last NCAA team, you know, the first seven or eight guys, you could write them down immediately. And most fans who watched every game would probably write down the same seven or eight names. On this team, you're going to see all 11 or 12 different names, and you're going to see them in all sorts of different order written by any number of different fans. There is no real clear hierarchy on this team. And, and a lot of that is performance-based. A lot of that has been performance-based through 24 games. Um, and I also think a lot of that is just the fact that, you know, this, the players that you have, I don't necessarily know if their strengths fit the way you're trying to play. You know, I think Jalen Carey specifically is somebody who needs to be out in the open floor, someone who needs to be pressuring someone who can finish on the break. He, he is incredibly athletic. You know, if you were to throw him off a couch or off a bed, he would land on his feet or land on all fours. You know, he's not going to land on his face like you and I and and Gary would. Um, He's just, he's a completely different physical specimen in that way. And that's why when you put him in a high school game or a prep game or an AAU game, he ends up a top 80 recruit because he has tools that, that you just cannot teach. But if you put those tools in a half-court game and you make him maybe the third guard and he has to make read and react decisions off pick and rolls or he has to make decisions on help defense, I don't necessarily know if he's at that point yet as a basketball player. I think if he was in some kind of system with pace where he was in the open floor and you maybe had some two-on-ones or three-on-twos and he was a finisher on the break, I think he'd be a lot more productive player. Um, you know, So I don't necessarily know if if his skill set is married to, to the style of play here so far, um, you know, and I, I think, I think you could say that for, for a lot of guys, but I, I, just, I just don't know if, if there's a clear enough hierarchy here, you know, beyond fats, um, you know, I don't know. And, and Shepard really, Jeremy Shepard's probably been the, the number two guy most nights, but I don't know if there's been enough of a hierarchy or enough of a commitment to trying to get to that list one through nine, one through 10, these are our guys. We're going to commit to this rotation, to these roles. I, I don't know if I've seen enough of that over 24 games.
0: Now, do you think that's going to change next year? Obviously, with, you know, Shepard and Fats not returning as of this point, because we don't know. Obviously, I think Fats is not returning, but I still have – Andrew still has a slight feeling that Jeremy Shepard going to come back, obviously, to talk for another day. But do you think that that rotation – how that rotation is going to change next year – when guys have to step up, where Jalen Carey's going to end up becoming almost the second guard, you know, and possibly getting better, more play, and other guys that are going to step up, including uh, Trace Perry, who hasn't even played yet.
2: I, I first, I'd be I'd be surprised if, if Fats or Jeremy returned. Um, you know, Fats has earned the right to go somewhere else if he wants to. He's going to be grad transfer. Uh, you know, he's put his name in the record books here. Um, you know, if he wants to go somewhere that he feels like is a better situation to get back to the NCAA tournament, if he wants to turn pro, I, I don't think any URI fan could begrudge him either one of those options. Uh, in Jeremy's case, he's going to be 24 in July. If I was him, I would turn pro, uh, you know, because you think about just the age of professional athletes and, and the window of their physical prime. Um, you know, if he wants to try and get himself into the G League or, or to Europe, and maximize his next seven or eight years before he's 32 or 33. I think he needs to start doing that now. Um, and he's probably put enough on tape this season to get himself a gig overseas. Um, you know, he's certainly a capable ball handler. He can shoot the three. Uh, he's long, you know, long arms. He, um, you know, he's, he's very fluid in his movements. I think he's got a, a significant professional career ahead of him. Um, you know, so if I was advising him, I would tell him to leave and, and go start playing this game for money. Um, so you take those two guys out and you're left, obviously, needing a guard. Uh, you, you certainly would need to prioritize bringing in a guard, whether it's as a grad transfer, a late juco, uh, you know, something along those lines, um, because you're going to start with this and you figure the Mitchell twins up front, Makai figures to be healthy after left knee surgery, I think McHale has probably outperformed expectations more than any other individual player. I think he's been really good, uh, you know, for a guy who hasn't necessarily played much college basketball coming into this year for him to give you 10 and six, if he can turn that into 14 and eight 14 and nine next season, he's going to be one of the better big guys in the a 10. I I think that's a good place to start. Um, I'd like to see more of a commitment to Antoine Walker. I, I know that, You know, sometimes it's difficult to play him defensively. I I know what Marcus Weathers did to him in the Duquesne game. I know that if you're playing against an undersized four, they bring Antoine out into the perimeter, and he's not necessarily the best guarding somebody off the bounce. But I just think from a physical perspective, you need an athlete like that in the lane, someone who's versatile, explosive. Um, If you're going to play the two Mitchell twins at the same time, and you play Walker at the three physically, you're going to be a really tough matchup up front. Um, you know, that's a pretty strong looking front court. Um, if you want to switch it up with the guards, you know, I just think you need another ball handler next to ish Leggett. I, I feel like you're going to need someone who can run the point a, a little bit. Um, you know, I'm not necessarily certain that Trez Berry will be able to do that right away after redshirting a year. Um, you know, and so I, I look at those guys and obviously you've got Malik Martin and Alan Beatran on the wing. You hope that they make some progress from last, uh, from this year into next year, obviously Malik with, with his offensive game, because he can certainly give you defense and, and blue-collar ethic. Uh, you know, with Allen, you, you'd like to see a little bit more aggression. Um, you, know, you see the dunk at Duquesne, and you can see what he can do physically. You'd like to see him attack the rim more and, and maybe take that aggression to the defensive end a little bit more, maybe a little, be a little bit more diligent at that end of the floor. So they do have some moldable clay here. I think, going into next year. Uh, It's important that you're able to retain everyone, and I think it's really important that you're able to add a guard who's able to play right away and and give you major minutes.
0: So last night with the Duquesne loss, David Cox uh, did the press conference and was asked what was one of the lessons that he learned from the season to move forward uh, and was asked what came to mind and kind of gave an answer that he didn't have anything. Do you feel as though David Cox is is almost at the point where he – doesn't want to explain himself anymore or is it more the fact that he's a little bit frustrated about this team and is kind of wanting to just say, let me figure it out. Let me get through this. And let me, let me figure out what the next step should be.
2: Yeah. There, there's some context there, obviously uh, you know, that's the end of a nine minute zoom conference. That was the last question. You know, he's probably mentally thinking, all right, that's enough. They've asked me everything already. Um, you know, what else can I say? I just watched our our players get beat for 40 minutes uh, and certainly for the last 30. You're down double digits for most of the last eight minutes. There's resignation there. I, I think, you know, there's certainly, you know, acknowledgement in that answer that it has been a difficult regular season, that they are not playing well, that it is not going well right now. Answering that question, what positive benefit could it have? For David Cox to, to answer that question, to, to offer some things that maybe he's learned if he doesn't have any positives immediately on hand. And, and I couldn't blame him if he didn't after watching those 40 minutes where you guys didn't defend, where you played the worst field goal defense you've played all year, where you've allowed the most points per possession you've allowed all year. Um, you know, the, the performance itself really isn't very defensible, um, you know, so If you're not going to sit here and, and, you know, blow sunshine into the sky uh, and and sort of come up with false positives or false hope or anything like that, maybe the best thing to do is to shut down the interview and and just move on and think, let's just get on the charter, get the hell out of here, get home. It's already late at night. We're going to get home late Saturday night and Sunday, and then we'll start working for the A-10 tournament. Let's just close the book on this thing. Could he have offered more there? Sure. Would I have liked him to? Of course, Um, but I think a a lot of the the next day analysis of of that isolated clip uh, leaves out the previous eight and a half minutes and and probably, you know, lacks a little bit of context. It's, It's probably being put out there into the ether to advance an agenda, not by Maury, but certainly by fans who are rightfully frustrated with with what's going on here, and in particular with what's gone on the last couple of games, so I understand it. I, I get it. There is room for legitimate criticism there uh, of the answer, but I think it's important to have you know full context of the answer, full context of the entire press conference before you go into that.
0: And thank you for that, because I know that we we obviously can't attend those press conferences yet. So sure, thank you for the context on that.
1: And. I, this is the last hard one, I promise, before we start getting into the fun stuff, talking about no, the tournament <laughs> <and> stuff. So <laughs> Gary and I have our feelings on this, and there's been rumblings on Twitter and stuff about Cox getting put on the hot seat and all that stuff, and right. we don't necessarily agree with that yet. Keyword being yet. Maybe next year at this point, if we're still in the same situation, that discussion can start being had. Do you agree with that statement? And if... We don't get rid of Cox this year, obviously, and that shouldn't happen. Could you see changes on the staff, like getting rid of some of the younger and bringing in more experience or something?
2: Yeah, I I think, you know, after a season like this, I I certainly think that everything would be on the table, you know, from a program perspective. I I think if you're the head coach and you go 10 and 14 and and it's the first losing season the program has had in seven years, um, I, I think you certainly have to put everything on the table in terms of assistant coaches, in terms of your style of play, in terms of your recruiting philosophy, I, I, think, I think you look at everything. Um, you know, I also think that, that successful programs do that every year as well. I, I think that self-scouting, self-awareness is, is a huge part of being a successful organization, uh, whether it's basketball program, business, whatever it may be. Um, in terms of David's future, uh, immediate and long-term, he has two years left on his contract. Um, you know it would cost you or i a, a reasonable amount of money to move on from him at this point and buy him out you're dealing with pandemic finances uh you know and donors who have probably taken a hit in those pandemic finances it might be more difficult to go to a donor or two and ask for buyout money at, at this point you know that's just the financial perspective um, in terms of performance guys I, I would say david's 11 games over 500 in, in 3 years here uh, He's had a stretch of 30 games where they were 24-6, and six, um, which was certainly successful. You're, you're on the brink of receiving votes in the top 25. You were an NCAA team until the last seven games of last season. It was unfortunate the way it finished. You're right to be frustrated about it. It's special when I goes to the tournament, and, and to see them kick one of those bids away is difficult to stomach. I, I fully understand that. It is disappointing. Um, And I think I wrote it as such at the time, but in this market, I I would say the only coach that I can really remember, well, there were two being dismissed prior to a full recruiting class going through Jerry DiGregorio was one that's for obvious reasons. He never should have been hired in the first place. The second was Keno Davis who was three or four games under 500 in three years at Providence. The difference there was Keno Davis had major off court problems. He had two guys go to jail for assaulting a fellow student, had no control over what was going on in that program in terms of his player's character. I I don't think you can say that at all about David. Oh, absolutely not. I think he's a profoundly good man who tries to do right, runs a clean program. I think he's someone who has been a really important example for his guys in a really turbulent time in America with social justice going on and the election going on as a black man, as a role model in that way. I think he's really important for his players to see. Um, You know, in terms of Rhodey not being put on COVID pause over the last four or five months, Mm -hmm. it means that his players, his coaches, his staff have been responsible with the pandemic and that they've put playing games and the players' health and their health above maybe some personal things that they wanted to do. So I think all of that is commendable. Um, And I think that When you take the three years as a whole and you look at who and what URI is and and what he's returned in those three years, I think he's certainly earned one more season. Um, You know, now if they're still in this same situation where they haven't made clear progress at the end of next year, uh, I would certainly think that Thor Bjorn would would take a look at it. And and I'm going to write as much for the end of the season. Um, You know, by the end of next year, it should be obvious whether or not you want to keep David Cox as your head coach or whether or not you want – to fire him and look elsewhere. I I think the end of next season is the time where you would make that decision. I I would also say that you should, as a URI fan, you, you should look at the program in totality as well. The goal here should be about making this program more than just one head coach. When you think about some of the teams that you're trying to compete with in the conference, whether it's VCU, Dayton, Richmond, St. Louis, The last five VCU coaches have made the NCAA tournament, including Mike Rhodes. Uh, Only one out of the last four at URI has done it. That's Dan Hurley. Jerry D didn't go, Jim Barron didn't go, David Cox has not gone. Um, When you have someone like Hurley and he's clearly special and different, he's able to paper over some of the cracks that you have, whether it's no practice facility, uh, a limited staff salary pool, you're still flying commercial, um, you know you, you might not necessarily have all the amenities that, that some of the schools in your own conference have, uh, whether it's VCU date and St. Louis. You're trying to overachieve to keep up with them. You, you are not spending to the point where you should be tenth in the league. you know this is a disappointment. Um, finishing in the bottom half is a disappointment. That in itself is fireable over an extended period of time but you're also not spending to the point where you should realistically expect to be competing for conference championships year in and year out. There is going to be a little bit of up and down here, um, you know, until your budget gets a little closer to Dayton, VCU, St. Louis, um, you know, instead of 60, 65% of it. Uh, So I think a, a lot of this year and going back into last off season, when you lose two guys who should have been potential starters, and and certainly, you know, a guy who would have been your second best player, at least Tyrese Martin. Um, I I think you need to ask a lot of program questions there too. And I think that you had a head coach who who was a special guy who was different from anyone else that you've employed for the last 20, 25 years. He was able to make a difference in that way. Um, And David Cox hasn't necessarily, uh, over the course of, of three years, hasn't necessarily met an incredibly high standard that was set by Dan Hurley
1: right and I completely agree with you on the point where I think URI needs as a program needs to be commended about how they've handled this COVID thing like I I would categorize that as a win at some point how you treat these kids and all that stuff is more important than the wins and losses on the court we have to think about first how their children how their kids and growing up and all this and that's more important and I think I think David Cox runs away with how to treat these guys and teach these guys as opposed to it's – people forget that these guys are student athletes and not everything wins and losses. You're also preparing them for the rest of their lives, and I think that's a big thing that needs to be addressed here.
2: Absolutely. I, I that, that cannot get lost in the shuffle. You know, the fact that that, that he's just a good person, um, you know, and that's, that's not enough to keep you in the job forever. Uh, you know, we are dealing with serious money here, uh, this does ultimately come down to wins and losses, um, you know, but in a season like this, it's a weird year for everyone else, considering the contract situation that you have going forward and, and the financial situation at URI, um, considering the reasonable amount of success that he has had through three seasons. I don't necessarily think that that you're going to look at this and be able to say, clear cut, we need to make a change right now.
1: And that follows me into it. With the economic climate that we're in right now, What realistic changes do you think that this program can and should make over the next couple of years to get us to that next step to the Dayton and VCU outside of the practice facility that they want to build and the charters and stuff?
2: You guys are fans, and and you've heard the discussion about the practice facility since David Cox's introductory press conference. That's almost three years ago. We still don't have it. Um, You know, there have been significant donations toward it. Uh, I know there have been two separate million dollar donations toward it, um, and that's great. I, I think it's wonderful that they're making progress toward it. I, I would say that at some of the places with whom you're trying to compete, these things happen a lot faster. They, they just do, whether it's because you have, you're in a different conference and your revenues are different, because you have different alumni support, because you have different history, let's say. Um, You know, I think about a place like Louisville, which is, you know, it's obviously not a direct comparison, and I am not making one. Uh, But Louisville makes a College World Series a few years ago. And next spring, they're opening a brand new baseball stadium on campus. And it happens in the span of six or seven months. Um, You know, you're looking at Rhode Island, they go to back to back NCAA tournaments, men's basketball is the flagship sport on campus. And three years after those NCAA tournaments, you're still having the same discussion about Renovating West Gym and, and trying to have a practice facility. Um, you know, so I think that just clearly illustrates the, how slowly things go here. Um, you know, they've been talking about charter flights since Dan Hurley's third, fourth year. He, he had some of those written into one of his contracts. You're flying commercial to play Western Kentucky this year in the midst of a pandemic in December. Uh, if you're a player or a player's parent or a recruit's parent, are you looking at that thinking, well, is recruiting me, but some of these places in the Big East are recruiting me, and Dayton's recruiting me, and everything they do is private, and my kid can go shoot free throws at 1130 at night if, if he or she wants to. What's really the choice? Right. If, if you're talking about getting better, the full student-athlete experience, bettering your game, having a chance to play pro or, or you know, otherwise, what's really the discussion? Um, you know, and so I think you're running into a little bit of that in the recruiting trail as well. And, and I think that goes back to, you know, what you're able to bring in. You're sort of going the transfer route. Guys who have struggled, have failed, uh, have looked for different situations from other places. I, I think that has a lot to do with the pivot to that. Um, you know, player retention being what it is. You have guys leave for, for bigger and better programs. I didn't see guys at Dayton do that. You know, Marcus Santos Silva left. I, I understand he left VCU. I didn't see Bones Highland leave or Kyle Lofton leave or Osun Osuni leave or Obi Toppin leave. You, you don't think Obi Toppin could have had his choice of places oh, after his redshirt freshman year at Dayton? He, he could have gone anywhere in the country. But he stayed because he felt like Dayton was giving him the maximum in some way and that they were going to be really good and that he could still play an NCAA tournament, play an NBA coming out of Dayton. Um, when you see guys leave like they do at Duquesne or Fordham, and now at URI, when you have two starters leave, you don't want to be in that group. That's not a place where you want to be. And so you need to seriously address whether it's staff or most likely your program amenities to get to the point where that does not happen.
0: Now, obviously the, you make great points, Bill, on that. Do you think that this could affect us long term in the in the fact where, you know, obviously the NCAA passes the transfer rule, which we don't know what could change with that next year and, and all that? But should you be as a URI fan worried that someone like Ish Leggett like could just say, you know what, they don't they don't have a practice facility, they're not doing this, they're not doing that and just decides to to get up and leave, you know, similar to Tyrese and, and Jacob. And I'm not saying, obviously, it's a pandemic year, and that was a little weird. But uh, possibly being worried that, you know, you have to kind of, you know, this has been said before, recruit your players every year to have them stay.
2: You're about to get into a really turbulent time for for college basketball, and it's going to hit everybody, uh, including the top programs. They're going to lose guys to, to one-time transfer. You might have the 10th guy on the bench at, at Baylor who says, you know, I want to play more. And, and I could still go to, like, an ACC school and, and get all the minutes and get all the shots and, you know, get a little bit more exposure. Um, but I, I think mainly what it's going to come down to is whether or not you're winning or losing. Uh, you look at what happened to Pittsburgh. Um, you know, Pittsburgh has two of its top three scorers decide that they're going to transfer this week. Yeah. This week, you know, before the end of the season. Um, and it's not a Jalen Johnson situation at Duke where he's going to go to the NBA and and most likely be a lottery pick. And he's got sort of this lingering foot injury that that he's trying to play through, but didn't really feel great about playing through and, you know, discussed it with his parents. And they sort of said, look, you know, you're going to play in the NBA for the next 15 years. The last thing you need to do is break your foot before the combine. And and then all of a sudden you get red flagged by however many teams. Um, But if you're Pittsburgh and, and you're clearly stuck in the bottom half of the ACC and not going anywhere, Can't compete at the top of the league. It's not like it was in the Big East days. Jeff Capel is doing a pretty good job there and still has no chance to compete with the teams at the top of that league. If you're at Pittsburgh and you're an ACC player and and one of their better players, somebody else will take you at a winner at an NCAA program. You could go to an SEC school, a Big Ten school, put your name out there, and somebody will have you. Duquesne had the same thing happen earlier this year with sincere carry leaving he's a preseason all-conference pick i don't know where he's going to end up necessarily i don't necessarily think that it's going to be you know like a power five or, or somewhere where he's going to be a major impact guy um but i do know that, that he just didn't want to slog it out in the bottom half of the a10 anymore um and so i think it's it's really important for uri as quickly as possible to reestablish themselves as a clear top four or five team in this league, uh, I, I think player climate being what it is, guys are just less likely to stick it out at a loser at, at this point. They've been to you know multiple different high schools, uh, a lot of guys, um, they've played on multiple different grassroots teams, change isn't new for them. And, and they understand that with the internet being what it is, you can get tape of your ability out there to just about anyone. You could start on the East Coast, and end up in the West Coast Conference playing at BYU, you know, and, and do so really easily. This isn't like what it was 10, 15 years ago. Uh, in Ish Leggett's case specifically, he has a really strong connection with David Cox, obviously. The Ish Leggett coming from St. John's College High, David Cox being the former vice principal there, uh, you would hope that that is deep enough to keep him here, and, and I suspect that it will be. Um, but it is worth thinking about in terms of what they're bringing in for freshmen. He's really the only freshman playing at this point. Um, you know, Trez Berry is red shirting. Ailery uh, Iofile is, is red shirting. Um, you know, previously you're bringing in freshmen who are in the rotation, you know, impact guys, whether it's Matthews, Martin, Terrell, uh, you know, Russell, whoever it may be, guys who can play right away, who are getting minutes right away, who are helping you right away and who are not leaving, who, who become cornerstones of your program. And so I think it's, you know, it's important to get back to that. And, and I think it's important to reestablish yourself as quickly as you can at or near the top of the league to do so.
1: So you would say that you don't want URI to fall into becoming a transfer you school, taking the big time players from the big conferences that want more minutes and come to lower conferences, so I, I agree. I don't want them to become transfer you either, but I could see it happening.
2: Well, I, I would say this, guys. I, I, I did some research on this because I had a feeling that this might come up, um, you know, just in terms of roster construction and player movement, whatever it may be. If you look at the last three postseason all-conference teams in the A-10 and you look at the preseason all-conference team this year, it's a total of 66 players. You had 13 transfers out of the 66. The other 53 guys were recruited initially by the program uh, that they're playing for now. Um, There were two Juco guys on the list, Courtney Stockard and Matt Mobley. They both went to St. Bonaventure. So the only guy who's really had any success with that is Mark Schmidt in terms of bringing in an elite player from the Juco level, a a guy who's going to be a top 15 player in the league. Another one of those 13 guys was Marcus Evans. He came from Rice with Mike Rhodes. So Mike Rhodes already knew what he was getting. Marcus Evans had already played in Mike Rhodes' system. The transition from one school to the other, one set of habits to the other, wasn't as dramatic. It wasn't as difficult as it might be for some of these other guys who are coming in from other schools and and trying to make their way into your program. Um, In terms of guys who have been first team all conference, um, there's only been... Three, Evans, Stockard, Mobley. Those are the only three guys who have been first team players, either the last three postseasons or this year in the preseason. Um, so you're talking about top five players in the league, guys who are going to win, you know, guys who are going to lead you to great things. You know, you're, you're not necessarily going to see those from outside. Uh, you're looking at power five guys who came in. Javon Bass came in from Michigan State. B.J. Johnson came in from Syracuse. You've only got a couple of guys there who are up transfers like Marcus Weathers or, or Josh Cunningham. Um, you know, so just in terms of the league and what the league has been the last three or four years and the profile of players that, that have been recruited into the league, they've generally been four year guys who have wound up being veterans in their respective programs. Um, you know, right now, in terms of the Ken Palm, uh, the Ken Palmall conference team right now, or at least when I looked at it on Saturday, they were all original recruits. Three of them were seniors. One of them was a junior, one of them was a sophomore. He's Bones Highland, Jordan Goodwin, Jalen Crutcher, Grant Golden, Kyle Lofton. None of those guys are transfers. Three of those guys are old men who, who stuck with their programs. So I just think that in a league like the A-10 that's a mid-major, you can get a few step-down guys, but I, I think it is there is great value And having the same coach, the same system, identifying that talent early, in the fall, bringing a guy in, pursuing him over an extended period of time, and then having him play early minutes and develop with you. I I think that that is still a tried and true way to win in college basketball. I think it always will be.
1: Oh Yeah, I completely agree with you. And as we wrap up the uh, talking about player movement and stuff. Javante Perkins literally just announced that he's coming back for using that extra year. If COVID restrictions are still in place and seniors can't find jobs if they're not going to go pro or they can't get overseas to go pro and all that stuff, could you see more of these seniors staying at their schools, not just in the A-10 but countrywide, and how that would affect freshmen going to where they want to go and how all that plays out?
2: I think you'll see seniors stay in place if, if they feel like they have a chance to win. I, I know that was the case at Richmond this year. You look at guys like Jacob Gilliard and, and Grant Golden. Um, you know they could have gone just about anywhere. Those two guys. Uh, you know they certainly would have had Power Five offers, Big East offers. Um, might not have been starters. Might not have played you know thirty, thirty-five minutes in a game. Um, but certainly would have been on teams who, who would have been in NCAA tournament contention. Um, they decided to stay. Because I think they looked at each other as a group and said, hey, we have a chance to do something good here. Um, Perkins at St. Louis, is he going to be the first domino? Can he bring Jordan Goodwin back? Can he bring Hassan French back? Uh, if he can convince those two guys to play for an extra year, I, I certainly think that St. Louis would be picked among the league favorites next season. Um, you know, So I, I'll be really interested to see if maybe you have some of this clustering on teams. You know, Maybe you have – a team that has two or three seniors, uh, you know, maybe a redshirt junior, uh, guys who are capable of leaving three or four at a time who decide, hey, we're going to use the COVID rules, and, and we want to play one more season in front of fans. We really like it here, and we think we could compete for a conference championship or, or have a chance to make the NCAA tournament, uh, and we're going to stay here and, and give it another try. I, I really think that that is something to look for, and, and that's probably why I don't necessarily think that it applies to URI. I. I don't necessarily think that, um, you know, with them finishing 10th at this point uh, with fats and, and Jeremy being the ages that they are um, with fats being the only four-year player, uh, you know, among the older guys, I don't necessarily think that, that there is that attachment, um, you know, or that there is that outlook, uh, you know, that would make it reasonable to stay here.
1: I think it's now time we start jumping into the fun stuff in the conference tournament and tournament and March Madness. With that being said, the A-10 moved their conference tournament up. And now we have a week before it ends in selection Sunday. And I know a lot of conferences are doing it. And there's been talk about teams trying to schedule some non-conference games to bolster their resume. Now I like that, but could you see that happening more and more in the future as like one good thing COVID gave us to help us, Get have teams booster their resumes.
2: I hope so. I I'm I'm skeptical. (laughs) I hope so though. Uh, you know I love seeing the best teams play each other. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Right? I I mean, there's there's just too many non-conference games that you don't care about. You guys are season ticket holders, right?
0: Yep. Right.
2: So I mean, you're you're paying for, you know, what four or five games a year, maybe, realistically. Right. Yeah, give or the or other ones you go to and it's a good time and you like seeing the team play, but you know, you don't want to see them play SIU Edwardsville or you know, you like Rick. Yeah, you know, like like that's that's not why you're buying the tickets. Um, you know, but that is to generate revenue for the program. It's to give the players reps, you know, it's to get them out of the floor when you're in a season like this and the games are going to be limited and everyone wants to get to the NCAA tournament, it created a certain desperation and and teams had no choice. They had to act. They had to get tough games. Um, You know, I certainly hope that that's the case going forward. I I am skeptical about whether or not it will be because I know how risk averse college basketball coaches are. Um, You know, I know a lot of times that you know, and and I've been critical of some of them. I was critical of Matt McCall earlier this year when when UMass lost to Bryant. Um, you know, I, I I said on Twitter that if I'm Matt McCall, I don't schedule that game because I don't necessarily know where my job security is. Uh, I don't necessarily know how my team is going to be. Um, and if I have another you know average to below average season in year four, or year five, or, or whatever he is, one of the first things my athletic director is going to ask is. Why did we pay Bryant 100,000 dollars to lose? What was the logic behind that, Matt? What the hell was going on? You know, when they're we're in the middle of a pandemic, you cut them a check for, you know, whatever it is. It wasn't 100,000 this year. Whatever
0: whatever it was.
2: <laughs> you know, whatever it was, it was probably 10 or 15 grand this year in, in a pandemic year. But in a typical year, you're talking 70, 80, 90, 100,000 for a buy game. You're going to pay Bryant lose to them? You know, a few years ago, LSU plays pays URI and they lose to them. The coach, you go into the athletic director's office, it's a very uncomfortable conversation to have. Um, you know, I would like to see more home and homes come out of this. I I think that there, if if nothing else, this has opened dialogue between some coaches who maybe haven't previously talked. Um, because I think coaches were really scrambling, struggling, looking to fill games, especially when they might have had opponents go on pause. So I I really hope that, that that spirit sort of carries forward. Um, you know, Andrew, specific to this year, I, I, you know, I think about teams playing early in conference tournaments. The two that came to mind immediately were Richmond and St. Louis, who, who are currently outside of the field. Um, you know, but what if Richmond could schedule Maryland on like, you know, March 7th, let's say. Um, and I'm just spitballing. I don't know the dates. I don't know. The
0: <laughs> <date>. right. <laughs> like right before, like right. like maybe like, Mar- like March 9th, the conference tournament is the 14th, but they play because they want to keep the legs fresh.
2: You know, somebody who's out of the tournament, who's out of their conference tournament, and who is still on the bubble. You know, are they trying to add a quadrant one game?
1: Like UNC did last week, and then they go right. lose, but that's right. besides the point.
2: No, no, maybe they could. Um, you know, I, I don't put anything past anybody at, at this point, college basketball, and, and I really hope that, you know, that sort of thing, that sort of creativity, if, if there's any positive that we take out of this past year, in terms of scheduling, in terms of health, in, in terms of everything that we've gone through, I, I certainly hope that that, that collaboration and, and that creativity is something that we take going forward.
1: Oh, and I think it would be great because you could also, the money involved too. If you can have, if you could have a, I'm just spitballing, if you could have Richmond and uh, St. John's playing the week before selection Sunday, winner goes to the NCAA tournament, the amount of money ticket sales that you would get, like, it's just it. It seems too good to happen, but I wouldn't mind them pushing the NCAA tournament a week and having a week where you can put a conference game, a non-conference game, or two in in the upcoming years. Sort of like a last
0: chance week. That would be wild. Oh, that yeah. would be insane. Te- would severe, be severe TV ratings. I feel also like money on the TV side too, where you could get people if you're like cool. Richmond's gonna play St. John's. They're both on the bubble. This can make or break. And then you're watching it because the game you are gonna play against each other intensely.
2: Well, this oh. this would this would essentially be ESPN's old bracket busters, but taken to the next level. Oh yeah, uh, you you would be taking it out of late January, early February, and you would be truly making it essentially an elimination
1: game. ESPN or anybody at NCAA, if you're listening to this, we we just helped you made all your money back.
2: <laughs> well, they they're not going to give us any money, you know. <laughs> no,
1: NCAA. Absolutely. Hey, if I get money. more college basketball games, I'll be a okay with that one.
2: Absolutely, me too. Absolutely.
1: But that leads us in to the A-10 tournament. I know as of right now, URIs play slated. They're locked in at the 10, I think, and they're slated to play St. Louis as of right now, but that could very much change tomorrow. So here's my wishful thinking that George Mason slides into the seven. We can win that game because we beat in George Mason. I know they're a totally different team now, and then you get a very injured VCU team on Friday. And, if you can get to Saturday, Lord knows what could happen.
2: Uh, you know, and David Cox made that point on Saturday, um, you know, and I, I I, think he's right. And I think that's probably – it's probably something that he's going to be preaching to his guys over the next few days, the fact that they beat St. Bonaventure and they beat VCU. And those are the top two seeds in this field. You know, and so if if you're going into this and you don't really have a lot of confidence and they don't, they've lost six out of seven. At the very least, you can take that they do have some quality wins uh, along the way that they have shown over 40 minutes at certain times that they can play with anyone in the league, literally anyone. Um, I agree with you. I I think the George Mason matchup would would be much better for them. Just from a physical perspective, you're, you're playing St. Louis. You don't really have anyone to guard Jordan Goodwin. He's a really tough matchup. Um, they're very physical up front they could get Mikael Mitchell into foul trouble like he was in at Duquesne you know and at that point you're you're, you're looking a little thin against Hassan French um, and against someone like Linson who, who's a step out five who can make threes I don't necessarily think that, that Mitchell or Jermaine Harris is going to be comfortable going out to the three-point line against someone like Linson um, you know St. Louis is tough and and St. Louis is going to have a chip on their shoulder like they did a few years ago when they were the sixth seed and ended up uh, earning the auto bid in the A-10 tournament. Uh, there is precedent for them to make a run. Um, I, I picked Richmond to win the tournament. I, I feel like, uh, you know, it's sort of last chance saloon for them, and I think they do have some talent, some older guys, and, and I think they could do something similar to what I did, you know, that first year when they made the NCAA. Uh, tournament under Dan Hurley and, and won the auto bid by winning the A tens. Uh, Richmond any, isn't anywhere near as hot as that URI team was. They've won five in a row, going to Pittsburgh. Um, but I just think I believe in Richmond's talent. I picked them to win the league at the start of the year. I, I think like I think they could be a difficult team uh, to deal with as sort of a mid bracket seed. You know, four, five, six somewhere in there. No one's really going to want to play against them. If if you're roadie though, I, I certainly think that. If it breaks for you where you play George Mason and you play VCU, I don't think you could have set it up any better. Yep. I think I think you can play with George Mason and, and beat them, and then VCU obviously, uh, you know, you beat them by 15 on the road and you lost on a late three-pointer at home. Um, and you have recruited players uh, to deal with their style over the course of five or six or seven years even. Um, you know, I, I would much prefer playing VCU over playing Davidson, let's say, who, who I think they struggle with. Um, you know Davidson employing backdoor cuts and motion offense and they do some different things uh, and I think URI is a lot more effective when they can be physical and body you in the lane uh, and bump you off cutting lanes and, and disturb you and, and I think defensively when they're at the best they're, they're doing those things
1: my dark um, horse is Davidson this year
2: no and, and they should be um, you know they're, they're always on the list because they can make shots because Bob McKillop's an excellent coach uh, because they do have a senior who's playing for a lot, Kellen Grady. Um, you know, that's that's certainly a team that you should never count out. Uh, and They did beat VCU the other night at home, um, you know, which was a significant result because it, it kicked VCU out of any contention for the one spot, gave the league championship to St. Bonaventure. Um, you know, but I just think if if your eye is a 10 and George Mason and VCU are, are in their track, I, I think that's about as good as you could hope for. Um, and if you're fortunate enough to make it all the way to the semifinals, then you just take your chances. Right.
1: Now, break it down for us because what – you Jari gave us your tournament prediction. Where do you see ultimately when the dust settles 24 hours from now where the top four seeds are? And can – I'm still confused about how the seeding is supposed to work.
2: <laughs> you're asking the wrong guy. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: I figured it was a long shot, but hey, I gotta You're, throw.
0: He's as confused as we are. Don't worry. I,
2: <laughs> I
1: still don't get how UMass could still end up with a two.
2: Well, the the thing is, is that journalists don't do math. We have statisticians do that for us, <laughs> uh, and the SIDs do that for us. Um, they're they're a lot smarter than me. Uh, you know, I I think generally what happens, guys, is, is normally on the last day of the regular season, uh, which is Monday, correct? Yes. Yep. The last day of the regular season, what happens is the league office sends out an email with tiebreaker proposals and and whatever else, Um, you know, and they have it broken down to like the seventh or the eighth iteration of of results and tiebreakers and whatever it may be. Um, Generally, what we think is going to happen is St. Bonaventure is going to be the one seed. They're locked into that. VCU most likely will be the two seed. UMass or Richmond looks like they're going to be the three seed, maybe Davidson. Um, you know, those are all uh, those could all potentially be four lost teams. Uh, I don't necessarily know how the tiebreakers would, would break down in that uh, St. Louis, if they were able to win, I think they can leapfrog George Mason and be the six seed, which would move George Mason to the seven. Um, you know, the eight, nine game would be Dayton and Duquesne. They are locked there. Uh, whoever's the eight, whoever's the uh, the nine. I don't know, really doesn't matter. Uh, URI is 10, George Washington 11, LaSalle and St. Joe's will play all Philly 12 and 13, and then Fordham is 14. Um, So you could have some movement between the two, three, four, five, six, seven. The rest of the games are are locked in. Um, One and then eight down. Uh, So just keep your eye out you know, assume that VCU will be the two. I, I think that's probably the safest thing you, you can do for right now. Um, you know, assume that a group of UMass Davidson, Richmond will be the three and then either George Mason or St. Louis will be the six or the seven.
0: That's a good way to put it, Bill. I'm like, cause believe me. I'm like these, the way that this has been going with the news breaking literally breaking while we were recording our episode, which was great because, you know, that screws everything up. Um, But just I think the way that they have decided this year to do everything is kind of just confused everybody. And just with COVID, with not being able to, like, go to the games and talk to people and have a conversation, have a know what's going on, has made it a little more difficult where I think the A-10 eventually, you know, tomorrow late night will be like, here, here's your bracket. Here you go. Like, take a look. And they, just, they will. <laughs>
2: that's that's exactly what they'll do. They'll they'll email out tiebreakers on Monday morning, and then by Monday night, all these games are at seven o'clock. They'll have a bracket probably by nine thirty.
0: Yep, and that's just the way it'll be. Uh, so changing gears, and then we'll we'll jump into Rody towards the end here. Uh, so the Rody women's team uh, today with a double digit win over VCU, a great game against Richmond, uh, and has earned the double bye in the A10 women's tournament. Uh, Where do you think the ceiling is for this URI women's team? I think they've already gone through
2: it. (laughs) Uh, I mean, goodness. You know, the way that they've played this year, you picked 11th preseason, you know, to finish fourth, to have double-digit wins for only the second time since you joined the A-10. First time
1: since I was born in 95. (laughs) If that doesn't make you feel old.
2: Well, no, Andrew, think about this, okay? I I looked this up earlier today. Rhodey has two double-digit win seasons in the A-10, and and that dates back to when they expanded the schedule to, like, 14 games. I think it was 86-87. So in the last 32, 33 years, 34 years, whatever that that shakes out to, they have two double-digit win seasons. They've had 12 seasons where they've won two games or less. Wow. This has been a serial loser for decades now. One NCAA tournament bid all-time. That was in 95-96. Uh, they went 13-3 and three in the league. Um, that's their best season to date, uh, really, in, in program history. When you consider that you are winning like this, coming from a position where you have been a serial struggler, the fact that you've been able to break through like this uh, for a second-year coach in Tammy Reese, who's revamped the entire roster, who's gone a, a little bit of a different route in terms of building her roster, she's gone the international way. It has worked out tremendously for for her. You know, I watched a fair amount of that game today against VCU. URI shooting sixty eight point six percent from the field is just outrageous. I, I think I think good teams realistically, and I and, and I'm not trying to be funny here. I think good teams realistically struggle to do that in practice. I, I think there are some practices. Against air, where you don't make seven out of ten shots in in your offensive sets, for them to do that today against the preseason favorite in the conference and and sort of dismiss them, the way you or I did, it's just so impressive. Um, you know the the transformation of that program is, is so impressive, and and that goes down to the coach, her staff, uh, and great credit to the players for for buying in the way that they have.
0: Now, obviously, you did have uh, an article where you, you chatted with Coach Reese, kind of a, a conversation with, with Coach Reese. Uh, what do you think has helped her in regards to kind of turning this team around and, and making them succeed?
2: I think she has a lot of the characteristics of, of successful coaches. I mean, she's a very successful, driven individual on her own. If you look at her playing career, whether it's a state championship in, in high school in New York, uh, she's a three-time All-American at Virginia. Um, she's a top five pick in the WNBA draft. And We talked about this a little bit before the podcast. People like that are just wired different. They, they see the world differently than you and I do when we get out of bed in the morning. It's just, that's a different level of competing. It's a different level of drive to excel that much in, in your career field. Um, you know, She's just a very different person in that way. You know, I, I, I just remember speaking to her. We probably had a conversation for about a half hour. She's just very open, very giving, very honest. Um, you know, if she's like that with her players like she was with me, I could see why they would engage, um, you know, and embrace her and, and maybe allow her to push them past where they normally thought they could go. You know, I, I, I just – I see a lot of characteristics in her that, that good coaches have. You know, regardless of the sport, regardless of whether or not you're coaching men or women or kids, um, you know, she she's just done a great job this year. Uh, you know, and the product is is obvious on the court. Uh, I mean, you you look at what they did to VCU today. I, I mean, it was just it was comprehensive. It really was. Um, you know, offensively they were sharp, they were crisp, uh, you know, shot the ball beautifully. As I said, uh, defensively, the adjustments that they're capable of making in game. Um, you know, VCU is seven for 12 from three in the first half. They go one for 11 in the second half. Obviously, there was some sort of discussion in the locker room or some sort of change in defensive scheme, or you took away one or two opposing players and decided, no, they're not going to do that. Not, not for the next 20 minutes. You know, not for the next two quarters. We're, we're not we're going to stop that. They're going to beat us a different way. Um, you know, so just the fact that, that Tammy Reese is who she is. That she's built, what she's built there, and that the players have bought in the way that they have—it's just very impressive.
1: Reminds me a lot of Hurley's first couple of years. I know we're not—I don't—I'm not very good at—not—I don't really like comparing, but it reminds me as the beginning of the Hurley era. And if we can have half the success with the women's program as we did when Hurley was here, that'd be amazing.
2: I, I feel like she is a year ahead of, of where Dan was. Um, you know, Dan's first—his first year was was a total throwaway. Uh, I mean, they were really bad. They had APR problems. He had guys playing for that team who who like you know should never have been seen again. Um, you know the second year was a lot like Tammy's first year last year. You're a couple of games under 500. You're you're struggling, but you're more competitive. You could sort of see it coming. Um, you know Dan's third year, they were an NIT team. I think Tammy's team right now is probably a women's NIT team if they play the event. Uh, they are not a they're not an at large NCAA team, but they would probably be in consideration for some sort of second tier postseason birth. berth. Um, you know, and, and on that trajectory, you take away the EC Matthews injury, you believed that you or I would have made the NCAA tournament in Dan's fourth year. Um, you know, that would be Tammy's third year. Uh, she's losing one player, Joanna Muzay. Um, she's graduating. You bring back everybody else. You've got some transfers sitting out. You've got some recruits coming in who are a little better than what you brought in before. You lengthen out the rotation a little bit from six, seven players to maybe eight or nine players. Maybe you force pace a little bit more. Maybe you're a little more aggressive on defense. Uh, I'm very intrigued to see where she can take it next year with a little better roster for one, uh, and maybe with a little more expectation on the outside. I, I think that changes you know, maybe how you're perceived maybe how your players react to it, there, there's going to be a different set of stimuli uh, around them next season as well.
0: I know that I'm, I know that Andrew and myself are really excited to potentially see uh, a URI Fordham rematch in the A-10 tournament for the women's team, just because the Fordham women's team in that game, URI played them really tough in at Fordham and, and almost squeaked out with the win. But I just feel like this URI women's team is kind of, got into their shell and could actually you know make that game a lot closer than than before
2: you, you just love the feeling of possibility it's a great thing it, it's a great thing to have as a fan it's a great thing to have that that little slice of belief you know that that little bit of knowledge that uh you know you're changing that your program is changing your team is changing in, in front of you that sort of climb is is always the sweetest because you have experienced the other side of it as well Oh,
0: absolutely. I, think, I I think also the 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 Tammy gift that uh, the gift that we posted, but also the video at the end of the broadcast today with her screaming into the microphone, just shows how that was how happy, how happy she is and how proud she is of this team.
2: Yeah, it's it's infectious. You you have to believe that, and and you know it. That that's not a show for the cameras either. I I, I firmly believe that's who she is. Twenty four hours a day. I, I know you know, just talking to her for that piece that I wrote for the journal, um, it felt like she was going to jump through the phone at me. <laughs> and, and, you know, I barely know her. I, I mean, we've spoken two or three times before, you know, but it's not like I'm one of her old friends or, or you know, I go to all of her games or, um, you know, I'm some sort of close confidant, uh, you know, and she's just right into, you know, stories about being a kid and when she started playing and, you know, where she got her competitiveness from and, you know, where she got her belief from, um. You know, it's just just very, very encouraging, very energetic. Um, you know, someone who who you would certainly want to play for if you were a potential recruit, uh, and someone who's on the roster right now.
1: All right. So we're we're gonna wrap this up, but we uh, be reminisced to not talk about PC and Bryant as part of our thing. A Couple of questions regarding PC. Do you think that they should have added a game this weekend? I know there was talk of them adding an at large a game to help their at-large resume and onto that. Do you think they still have a shot at being an at-large team?
2: Uh, I don't, I, I don't think they have a chance. I, I think that chance went away when they lost at UConn. I, I believed at the time that they needed to win out all the way to the big East finals. Um, you know, I felt like at UConn would have been a quadrant one win Villanova at home is a quadrant one game uh, stands to reason. you You might get at least one more, maybe two more at Madison square garden if you're able to win all of those finish at or above 500 in terms of quadrant one, maybe that would have beefed up your resume enough. I, I think they would fall short right now in terms of at large contention. I, I think, I think that that discussion about adding a game, what what I think happened there. And, and I said that on uh, I, I said it on our podcast this week with Nick Coy, uh, the journals college basketball podcast. I felt like, that was probably something that Cooley spoke about with the announce team before the game. These coaches all meet with with the play by play teams on Zoom, you know, usually for a half hour or so, and you just sort of give them an idea. Here's where we're at. Here's what this guy's about. Here's what that guy's about. And it's normally a very free exchange. It allows the announcers to give some context. What I get the feeling was Cooley probably, you know, just said very offhandedly, "Hey, we're thinking about adding a game. You know, we're not really sure." Uh, it got brought up in the broadcast and then he got outed and, and got asked about it after, it came. Um, you know, and I, I don't necessarily know if it was something that he was really that serious about. Uh, you're talking about a 72 hour window. There a lot of logistical challenges. Other teams are in their conference schedules. You, you're probably talking about, you know, some sort of 24 hour turnaround where you fly in, play the game, fly out, uh, or bus in, play the game, bus out. Uh, if they were a little closer to the bubble, maybe I think it would have been a little more of a consideration, but, uh, as things stand right now, I, I think that was probably one of those throwaway lines in a, in a pregame production meeting. All
1: right. And to follow that up about their non-conference schedule and that stuff, looking back on it, and I'm not saying this to start any more URI, PC, banter, anything. Okay. Do you think, looking back on this, he regrets not playing a tougher game in Dickinson? I know URI, we didn't pan out the way we should have pan out, but not putting a tougher game in that
2: spot. No, I don't, because because I feel like he looked at his schedule on the whole, and he saw Maui. There's three pretty good games at Maui. Uh, Turned out to be, I think, I want to say, you know, certainly could have been two or three quadrant one games there. Uh, Indiana certainly was. Um, I I have to believe they're 50 in the net. I haven't looked recently, Um, you know. But you felt like you would get three marquee games there. Uh, You felt like you were going to have. The Big East, Big 12 Challenge, you're going to TCU, you're hoping that they could squeeze into the top 25. That's a quadrant one game there. And then in the Big East, I think last year out of their 20 games, I think 13 were in quadrant one. Um, you know, So you're looking at that and you're you th- – sorry, out of their 18 games last year, 13 were in quadrant one. You're adding two more out of the 20 this year. You, you have to think that you're going to play the same. Didn't end up working out that way. The Big East didn't end up as good as it was last season. But I think if you're Ed and you look at it in a given year, you, you're just, you're looking at your schedule and you're thinking if we get into a, a good exempt event at the start of the year, Maui or the Emerald coast classic or the wooden legacy or something like that, you have a chance to play a couple of quadrant ones. You have the two conference challenges with the big 12 and, and with the big 10, which was canceled this year, but you have another chance to play two quadrant ones. And then the conference strength of schedule is, is going to drag you to the point where you're going to have enough other chances to play quadrant ones. So he's playing fairly Dickinson to pass the time to get guys minutes to get a win to build some confidence. Uh, he was not going to schedule URI without the full building without a real home game. Uh, he was not going to schedule you know some regional game against a good team like he wasn't going to bust to Maryland or something like that just for the sake of you know playing a difficult game against the Big Ten team or you know or go to Rutgers you know for the sake of Playing a quadrant one game against a Big Ten team, I, I just think that Dickinson was to get his guys on the floor, get them some reps, and, and I think it was a game that he filled a gap with because he felt like the rest of his schedule was good enough.
1: And to follow up on that, I've got to ask you. You don't have to get into it; just a simple yes or no will suffice. If you want to get into it, go right ahead. Does this not having the UI game this year? Do we think is it going to come back? It's yes. okay. Okay. It's- Okay, now if there's no fans allowed, do you think it happens next year, or do you, or is that too tricky to get into?
2: I'm gonna be really glass half full and say, with the pace that vaccines are being rolled out right now, by the first Saturday in December, we are going to have a full Dunkin' Donuts Center, and we will be playing that game. Like,
1: I like that. I like, I like, I like that. I like that. and Gary and I will be some of the only URI fans in ourkiwi blue, <laughs> so you'll be able to see us there.
0: Right. Uh, so then obviously talking about the other team in Rhode Island, obviously as we're recording this, Bryant currently uh, did have a positive case uh, among their tier one uh, team. We don't know too much exact about it. We don't know what's going on with it. Um, do you think that Bryant is too good for local teams to, to play them? So like someone like PC or URI next year should be slightly worried with them returning some of their seniors uh, coming back to the team?
2: I mean, they won at UMass this year, and and UMass swept URI. So if we're going to use the transitive property, you know, if, if Team X can beat Team Y, I know it doesn't work that way. <laughs> um, I I would say about Bryant, um, Jared Grasso is going to be a really popular guy this offseason. He is a good team coming back at Bryant. They are going to be the NEC favorite next season. Um You know, this could be a a circumstance like Dan Hurley had when he turned down Rutgers for the second time. Um, You know, if Jared gets involved at, say, Fordham, um, you know, Penn State, something like that, is he going to take a job that's in the bottom half of a league just for the sake of of a better contract? Or is he going to stay at Bryant, win one more year, and, and then maybe get a better job? Um, because I, I firmly believe they're going to be the NEC favorite. Um, you know, I think if they're able to get on the floor, if they were able to somehow avoid the COVID pause for the second time, I think they'd be favored to win the NEC title this year. Um, so I'm, I'm intrigued to see how that plays out with his future. I, I do know this. His first game in charge was the same night as David Cox's first game in charge. It was in Kingston. URI won by 33. If you put those two teams on the floor right now, you or I would not win by 33. Mm. That game would not play out the same way, not even close. Um,
1: he's a great coach.
2: He's very good. I'm very impressed. Um, you know, the, I, I, think the, I think the best thing I could say for Jared is uh, you know, he, he does a lot of the same things that, that Tammy Reese does in terms of his energy, his players buy in, um, you know, his infectiousness in the roster. Um, but I, I also would say that Jared has found his own style. And I, I know that a lot of folks uh, looked at him coming out of the Iona system under Tim clouse He'd been there for eight years. And you think, you know, Tim clouse is just going to run up and down and play offense and, and not necessarily defend and not necessarily, you know, be all that tough or all that diligent in, in any way. He's just going to try and outscore you. And uh, when you play teams with better talent, who are more athletic, that's not necessarily going to work. The most encouraging thing I've seen out of Bryant over the second half of the season is they found a way to win some games in the mud. Yeah. You know, they beat Merrimack 60-58. Uh, you know, they beat Long Island the other night 63-60. A game where you they can had score too. And if you want to run with them, they can run. And they can shoot and they have some skill. But I, I think I think the best thing that good programs have is they have different gears they can shift into you want to run up and down and, and be athletic and shoot threes? Okay, we can do that. You want to slow it down and be physical and get into the mud and, and have a test of wills? Okay, we can do that too. And if you can coach those two or three styles uh, based on your opponent and you can execute and hold your nerve in some of those games, I think that reflects really, really well on the job that, that Grasso and the coaching staff have done. I, I look forward to seeing where he goes you know, not only at Bryant, but in terms of his coaching future, uh, you know, because I think he, he is on the right path towards big things.
1: Yeah. I think if I'm him, I answer the phone to Fordham, but I wouldn't go to Fordham. I just, I just, there's too many question marks at Fordham for me, but, and I also think that if I'm praying that they can get back on the floor, because I think they could definitely make some noise in the NEC tournament. And if I'm one of those three, cause I picture them being, if they get in, they'd probably be a 14, 15 seed somewhere around there they get in, I would not want to be that two or three seed that sees Bryant on the other end because that could be a scary game for them.
2: They'd be a difficult team to play from the standpoint that they can go out and make a bunch of threes and knock your lights out that way. Um, You always need to be afraid when you're in the NCAA tournament of a team that can go out there and make 15 threes in a game. And they can, Um, you know, whether or not they would on a given night. I don't know. Whether or not they're healthy enough to do it, I don't know. Uh, This is all presuming that they can get on the floor again, which I hope they do. You know, I I think in terms of of them going forward, of Jared going forward, uh, with respect to Fordham, you have to look at Fordham and think, yeah, it's a loser. It always has been in the A-10. But coaches, like I was saying about Tammy Reese earlier, coaches are wired differently. They think differently. They need to have a certain level of self-belief that we don't necessarily understand that we don't think makes sense, they believe that they can win at any job. They believe that they will bring in players and coach them up and get them to buy into the point where they can win at any job. Um, you know, great coaches, whoever you think of in whatever sport, the ones that come to mind for me are guys like Bill Parcells and Bill Belichick, um, you know, women like Pat Summit, uh, people like Gino Auriemma. Um, Some of them more humble than others, more personable than others. But at their core, all incredibly determined, all people who have, or at least project, unshakable self-belief, you know, both in their own abilities and in yours. Uh, And so I think someone like Jared, you know, if he is the coach that he thinks he is and that we think he might be, he's going to look at Fordham and say, hey, I'm a New York guy. I coached at Iona. I've recruited the five boroughs. Michael Green is a better guard than anyone those guys have, and I got him to come to Bryant, and I developed him into an all-NEC player. What if well, I he got, got him
1: to go to Bryant because of Parenti's restaurant right up the street. <laughs> well,
2: that's, that's right. But I'm, I'm looking at some of the guys who I've recruited at Bryant, who I've turned into all, all-NEC players. And then I'm looking at Fordham's roster, and I'm thinking, I've better better roster than they do. We went on the road against them the last time we played them. So certainly I would do a better job than what Jeff Neubauer did here. Um, you know, and if I can finish fifth or sixth in the league, they're going to give me a 10-year contract. And some other school is going to say, wow, this guy's winning at Fordham. How's he doing that? we got to hire him. Um, you know, so I, I think coaches all have that, that sort of incredible way of betting on themselves. What, what I'm hoping for selfishly is, is Jared stays at Bryant for at least one more year, that he coaches a really good team in 21-22, that they open up the Chase Center and it is absolutely rocking in there in that small little high school gym that they could pack wall to wall and have that sound rip off those cement walls in there. I, I think that would be a lot of fun.
1: I hear that noise in Barrio. But anyway, <laughs> absolutely. as we uh, so this is going to be our last one for you, Bill, and it's probably going to be the hardest one all night. As we get as we get to March first, we need your final four predictions before we let you go.
2: Wow, okay. Uh, depending on the brackets, of course, uh, it looks like we've got three clear number one seeds already. Gonzaga, Baylor, and Michigan. I, I, I get the feeling that those three are locked in. Uh, in terms of the fourth, I don't know, we'll see. Uh, there, there are a few teams who might be able to play their way in to that spot. Um Throughout most of the year, I, I think Gonzaga and Baylor have been the two best teams. Uh, Baylor obviously lost to Kansas the other night, but you know I certainly think that Scott Drew has, has built a really good team, guard dominant team. Um, there, I, I think they're really good, uh, really tough at both ends. Gonzaga, the, the skill level is just amazing on the offensive end. Uh, how versatile their guys are! How good Jalen Suggs is—he's a lottery pick. Uh, you would never believe that he's a freshman unless you saw it on the roster. He is so special. Um, So I would expect to see those two teams in the final four. I I would imagine that, you know, just about anybody who fills out a bracket is going to like those two, you know, looking elsewhere. I mean, teams that I like in other leagues, uh, I'm always intrigued by Texas tech. Chris Beard has those guys play so hard. They're so annoying. I I saw what they did to, to Texas for stretches on Saturday and, Texas did not look like they were having a good time in the second half. You know, Texas, Texas, one of those teams that you see and you're just like, Oh no, you know, it's going to be a long night playing against these guys. Uh, So they could be like a dark horse type of pick Loyola Chicago has been there. Those seniors were were on a final four team as freshmen, someone like Cameron Krutwig, they'll be a dangerous team uh, in brackets anywhere. You know, I, I look at, A place like the SEC, what a job Nate Oates has done in Alabama. They're going to be a dangerous team going forward. A lot of fun. They score it like crazy. They get up and down and shoot threes. Um, You know, they're the type of team that could run somebody off the floor if they can force their tempo on you and and turn you over. Um, You know, they'll be a really dangerous team going forward. Um, But I I just think Baylor and Gonzaga are, are probably a cut above the rest. Um, and depending on matchups and, and whatever else, you know, you'd be looking in your brackets for, for certain teams who, who might be able to bust through. Hmm,
0: fair enough. Now, uh, obviously I know that you mentioned earlier that you thought, you know, you said earlier this season that you thought Richmond, you know, was going to win the A-10. Is that your pick for the A-10 tournament? Or do you think that somebody else could jump out and, and take the auto bid uh, other than Richmond?
2: Uh, that is my prediction. Um, I don't necessarily know if it's going to happen uh, because really how much has Richmond shown us to this point? They're, they're not exactly uh, the lock that, that they were, you know, maybe preseason. Uh, they're certainly not as good as they were before Nick Sherrod got hurt. That was a huge loss for them going into the year. You lose a shooter like that. Uh, you know, someone like Tyler Burton could break out here, sophomore at Richmond, a, a guy who, You know, there have been some analysts and scouts say that that his ceiling could be NBA upside. He's certainly athletic enough. 6'7", he looks like a pro shooting guard. Um, You know, maybe he breaks out and and has a bit of a star turn next to a really good experienced core. Blake uh, Blake Francis, Grant Golden, Jacob Gilliard. Those guys can really play. Um, You know, it would not surprise me to see them run through. Uh, as Andrew said, I'm never surprised by anything Davidson does. Uh, I, th- I think they're really difficult to prepare for, especially on a one-day turnaround. Um, I wouldn't mind playing them the first game. I would have a hard time playing them the second or the third game uh, because they, they are so uh, different from so many other teams with their motion offense and, and their principles at that end. Um, you know, St. Louis is it's just difficult from the standpoint that they defend and they're physical and they're old. Uh, and those guys have, you know, had an NCAA culture for a while. And, and Travis Ford has won that tournament before, so he knows what it takes. Um, you know, so those teams in the middle are, are, are dangerous. Uh, you know, VCU, if, if Bones Highland is healthy, you know, he's been one of the best players in the league this season. He's the type of guy who could be the star to take you through the bracket. I, I think he's really special. Um, the last time VCU was one seed in that tournament, they lost to URI. I would imagine that Mike Rhodes is going to have a message or two for his team about being the two seed this year and what can happen when you're a high seed, Uh, you know, and how they were disrespected being picked ninth preseason. Um, You know, so I, I certainly think that, you know, they're a dangerous team at the top of the bracket. I, I, I look at St. Bonaventure and I'm going to do what everybody else does and and discredit them and I'm going to be wrong and they're going to leave (laughs) egg on my face. Um, You know, I just, I, I always wonder whether or not St. Bonaventure can win three games in three days, basically only playing six guys. I, I, I don't know if that's possible, uh, but I do think Mark Schmidt is an excellent coach. Uh, hmm. I, I don't put anything past him. I would stick with Richmond as my pick. I don't feel great about it. I think we could see a wide open A-10 tournament. In fact, it's, it's what I'm expecting. Um, I would not be surprised if there was a team wearing road uniforms on the quarterfinal day, who ends up winning the whole thing.
1: Especially right. if that road uniform's keeny Blue, but that's just my personal <laughs> opinion.
2: <laughs> you know, we've said it all year. we said it at the, at the top. This team has not lacked for talent. They lack for cohesion. They lack for identity. But they do not lack for individual talent. And the fact that they've beaten the top two seeds in the field and the fact that they've beaten Seton Hall and nearly clipped Western Kentucky on the road suggests that the upside is there. It's just a matter of whether or not they put it on the floor.
0: I completely agree with you, Bill. Uh, and with that, that's going to close out our interview. If you haven't done so already, uh, do make sure to I'm going to say subscribe to the ProJo, so you can read Bill's articles uh, on ProJo.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at Bill Koch25koch. K-O-C-H, if you, you don't know how to spell Koch, but Bill Koch25 on Twitter, he is the best source for roadie information one of the, the best ones to give everything around. And also great for Red Sox coverage if you're looking for that as well. Uh, but thank you, Bill, for, for chatting with us. Obviously, I think we're going to have to talk a little bit after this St. 10 tournament and kind of piece together what's going on uh, after all this, because who knows where we could be in two weeks from now uh, after all this.
2: Well, guys, it's my pleasure. Um, you know, again, really admire your passion for roadie hoops. I, I really, you know, I, I, I really, uh, I can feel that. From, from both of you, um, you know, I give credit to Blue Man. This is the best recruiting he's ever done. I, I know he wants to coach people. He's gonna have to settle for uh, landing me as a, a podcast guest for you guys. That, <laughs> that might be his peak. Um, but I, I really appreciate you guys having me on. I'll come back anytime.
1: Awesome. Thank you very right. much, thank Bill. You, Bill. All righty. Thank you very much for coming on back with us. And thank you very much, Bill Koch, for joining us. Make sure you guys give him a follow at BillKoch25 on Twitter. And make sure to check out his articles at the projo and follow him for Red Sox information. And we look forward to having Bill hopefully on the show at another point in
0: time. Yeah, and with that, it brings us now to our usual segment that we call News Around the A-10. But obviously, with the conference tournament starting today, we are going to go right into our conference tournament preview where we're going to be able to give you guys all the information on the seating and the matchups and the locations and all that fun stuff regarding this year's A10 Men's Basketball Championship. What do we got, Andrew?
1: Yeah, but before we jump into that, we just got to do our usual Players of the Week. And we're going to first start off with our Rookie of the Week, which is Rhode Island's own, for the second time, Tyler Golick out of George Mason. And the Player of the Week, Taylor Funk from St. Joseph. He led the Hawks to 2-0 record last week, and he was able to score his 1,000th career point in a win over Dayton. And we also want to shout out our women's team for MP Fapasi scoring 32 points in a win over VCU and becoming the player of the week in the A-10 and also helping clinch a top four and a double bye for the women's team in the Atlantic 10 tournament that starts in two weeks and – To make y'all feel bold, the first this is the first time that they've gotten a double bye and had more than 10 wins in a conference season since 1995. Oh yeah. And for all those who care, that is the year that I was born. So makes me feel (laughs) real (laughs) old.
0: Just dating yourself, Andrew. Just dating yourself. Absolutely. So before we get into the tournament seating, we did have some games on Monday that did affect The standings for the A-10s are going to go over those real quick. So Dayton was able to pull over a win over St. Bonaventure, 55-52. St. Louis wiped the floor with UMass uh, with a 78-57 win. That game a little scary for St. Louis, but they were able to pull it out. And then St. Joe's is able to upset the Richmond Spiders in Richmond, even after Richmond put up a three-pointer with no time on the clock that did go in but did not count. So St. Joe's gets the win against Richmond, 76-73. And let me tell you, that affected a lot of these standings, right, Andrew?
1: And that affected a lot of bubbles too because I I was up here in Rhode Island and I heard that Richmond bubble pop when they lost that game. Uh, before we run into the seedings, I'm just going to run over the bubble real quick. Lenardi still has VCU as the last four-by team. St. Bonaventure is the automatic qualifier and St. Louis in the first four out. Richmond dropped, obviously, after their loss to St. Joseph's. And Davidson is just praying for a miracle, I guess. So as of right now, it's a two-bid league. Could see three teams, but we'll get into that later. But we're going to round out with your final seating. 2021 Atlantic 10 Championship bracket is as follows. In the 12-13 game at 11 o'clock on Wednesday, you have LaSalle and St. Joseph's. Your 11 matchup at 2 o'clock is George Washington and Fordham. And then on Thursday, the greatest day, four games starting at 11 o'clock, you have your eight, eight-seeded Richmond Tide Spiders playing the Duquesne Dukes. At 1 p.m., you have the UMass Minutemen playing the winner of the LaSalle-St. Josephs game. On Thursday at 3.30, you have Dayton playing Rhode Island. And at 5.30, ending the day, you have George Mason playing the winner of George, Washington, and Fordham. And then St. Bonaventure will play at 11 against the winner of the 8-9 game. St. Louis plays at 1 o'clock against the winner of the 5-12 game. The winner of the dayton Rhode Island game gets VCU. And Davidson gets the winner of the George Mason game. And boy, oh boy, is it going to be a fun couple of days down in Richmond.
0: Yeah. this. Uh, just looking at this bracket, Andrew – just the way the St. Joe's played in their last two games, if I was UMass, I'd be pretty scared. That, that's what I'm going to say. Especially
1: with how how poor the UMass played coming off their break. And not for nothing, that GW Fordham game could be interesting because I'm pretty sure this is Fordham's first game after their pause. So, And we know what George Washington did to us after their pause. But going into the games on Monday night, this bracket did not look like this at all. We were no. slated to play St. Louis – we had, I think it was around a sixty percent chance that we were going to get George Mason, and quite frankly, that's the matchup. I know Gary and I talked about it with Bill Koch. We wanted the Mason matchup to get us to VCU, and then if we were able to beat VCU, Lord knows anything can happen on Saturday. But yeah, Richmond fell all the way to eighth with their loss. With their loss, like they like they say this tournament. Any, I firmly believe that anybody can win. Well, besides Fordham, but. <laughs>
0: I agree with you, Andrew. And I mean, th- this bracket, just the, the path that these teams would have to go through, uh, specifically Rhode Island, because obviously we're a Rhode Island podcast, but URI plays Dayton, which they've already beat once this year and did lose one game as well. Uh, and then the opportunity to play VCU, both of those games happening at the Seagull Center, which is hilarious to think that the A-10 made a big deal about not putting VCU or Richmond in their own arenas, and that's still happening. But that's another conversation. I mean, obviously, yeah. I don't think you can predict. I think you set the bracket, and that's just the way it goes. You're not going to rotate games because that's uh, you, could, the you
1: could move. The, the, the arenas are within 10 miles of each other. They could have changed things around, but that's that's an argument for another day. And I got to say, I think Davidson is probably the quietest 3C that I have ever seen in my entire life. Nobody has been talking about Davidson. And boy, oh boy, have they been flying right under that radar. Kellen Grady's been coming on. Hongji Lee has been coming on. Like, and Bob McKillop just has those guys playing in March, just like he always does. Bob, middle name March McKillop. Don't be shocked if they're in Dayton in,
0: in a week and a half. Yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously, the concern I would have in looking at this bracket is that nobody. You're right, Andrew. Nobody's talked about Davidson, and this team could just show up out of nowhere, and and. Make a couple wins and then play on Sunday in Dayton. So you have those yeah, games. That, obviously, that obviously,
1: offense that they have is
0: ridiculous. Oh yeah, I w- I was watching their game the other day and I was like, wow! I'm like, this team can, this team you plays get, real hard. You play a like they, the
1: George whoever wins the Mason Fordham game. You better hope that that game does not that game's not a sprint run up and down the court because Davidson will make you work. By the time you get to Saturday, if Dayton's lucky enough, if Davidson's lucky enough to get there. Whoever they're playing better be ready to move around on defense or you are going to be going home.
0: Yeah, exactly. Obviously, we talked about all the seating. Just remember that the semifinal games are happening Saturday at 6 p.m. and 9 p.m., both those games on CBS Sports Network. The first round, the 12-13 and 11-14 games are on ESPN+. Uh, the next two rounds are on NBC Sports Network, and then the semifinal on CBS Sports Network. And then the championship happening one week later on March 14th, selection Sunday at one PM. That game is gonna be on CBS Sports and that is your A ten tournament. I just want to say, whoa, whoa, Andrew whoa, Gary,
1: oh, Gary, we forgot one thing before the A ten tournament preview. We didn't give the
0: we didn't give the fans our predictions. Oh boy. I was trying to skip it. Can you tell?
1: <laughs> yeah, but you can't
0: skip it. Hey, I, I that is fine. All right, Andrew, I'll let you go first because I need to look at this and, and make a decision. So, Oh,
1: man, Gary, let, I let, was going to be let, nice and let you go first. I, I reminded so let, us
0: of it. So let's do this, right? Because I don't want to go over the whole bracket. Let's start from Friday, and we'll go from Friday on and mark that in from here. So what do you I got, think, Andrew?
1: I think uh, – I'm going to go chalk with St. Louis and St. Bonaventure playing on Saturday. I'm going to take Davidson on Saturday as well. And I know this is going to sound like a homer, but whoever wins that URI Dayton game is going to play on Saturday. I don't see VCU winning on Saturday. I just, I feel like there's going to be too much pressure on them. I think their injuries are going to catch up to them. I just, I think they're going to feel too confident being on their home court and, both Dayton and Rhode Island will be playing with house money, so whoever whoever wins the Dayton URI game, I'm gonna say is gonna play on Saturday. And I think taking that trip to I think taking that trip to UD Arena on Selection Sunday, playing for their lives, is gonna be Davidson and St. Louis, and because we all know that their number one seed does not win the conference tournament in the A10.
0: Hmm.
1: My heart is telling me Davidson, but my brain is telling
0: me St. Louis. Okay. We're going to go St. Louis then for you. Okay. So let's do this, right? So I think St. Bonaventure advances with a win easily and St. Louis advances with a win easily. So that's all set up. I will gladly take Davidson because I do think they're flying on the radar. I see Rhode Island playing VCU and Rhodey taking the win against VCU. I do see Davidson coming out, but I'm going to take St. Bonaventure over St. Louis. And at UD Arena, I see Davidson being crowned as Atlantic 10 champions with St. Bonaventure falling to the same feet that URI fell to in 2018. So making it all the way there and then just losing there. So we will – so Andrew has – And
1: I like how we both have very different brackets. I like it.
0: Yep, so Andrew has St. Louis as A-10 champions. I have Davidson as A-10 and- champions. And obviously, you guys can fill out your brackets and tweet them to us. We'd love to see who you think is going to advance to the A-10 tournament uh, this year. Now, before we get into the final segment of our show, I did promise you guys at the beginning of the episode that if you made it this far, you are going to gonna get to find out some news. So obviously, obviously, our next episode that we'll release will happen after Selection Sunday and after the A10 tournament has been completed. So you guys will not be with us for at least another week, week and a half with a normal Roadie Baseline episode. But we didn't forget That's about you guys. What you
1: think, Roadie Nation? Right.
0: That's what we you didn't. Think. For- <laughs> we pulled <laughs> we didn't out. We pulled one out of the hat here, boys and girls. Yeah, we didn't forget about you guys. So we are excited to announce that a bonus episode of Roadie Baseline will be releasing on Monday, March 8th, with an interview with women's basketball head coach Tammy Reese joining the Roadie Baseline podcast on Monday, March 8th, before the Atlantic 10 Women's Championship. How about that? Boom, boom,
1: <laughs> mic drop. I, In the literally. words of Tammy Reese and her gift, ah!
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we are super excited to have Tammy on the show. Tammy, uh, luckily has been liking all of our tweets. So we did go through a reach out and we're able to get Tammy on the show. Tammy's going to be talking a little bit about the women's team this year and about the A-10 women's tournament. And we will have that episode releasing Monday at 12 p.m. March 8th, right before the women's tournament kicks off on March 10th from Richmond, Virginia. But Andrew, I think, uh, I think we need to tell the fans uh, a little bit about what our predictions will be for how many bids... The A10 will get in the NCAA tournament.
1: Oh, absolutely, Gary. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna let you take this one first because my prediction is gonna lead into my weekly hot take of our this week's episode.
0: All right. So I think that the A10 is gonna get two bids this year in the NCAA tournament. The automatic qualifier will be Davidson, which I will still keep that. And I do think that the second bid will be St. Bonaventure, but they will have to make it to Sunday to get an A-10 bid. So if they do, if they lose on Friday or they lose on Saturday, their bubble, so to say, will be popped and there will not be the automatic uh, or an automatic in, and they would possibly make it to the NIT or however that would work. So we're going to go with two bids that I have for the A-10. What do you think? Yeah, to, to answer
1: your question, if – St. Bonaventure doesn't make the NCAA tournament. They are guaranteed a spot in the NIT as the conference champion. I do think we're going to get two teams into the NIT being Davidson and VCU and St. Louis and Richmond and those Of those five, whoever doesn't make the NCAA, I think will make the NIT. But my prediction is three to four teams. This is all wrapped into my hot take, okay? And you're going to see it all across – so let's, You're going to be let's get it all let, college
0: basketball. Let let's get into this Andrew's hot take for the week to close out our conference preview episode. What do we got, Andrew?
1: So obviously you have Davidson winning the tournament, who'd be the automatic qualifier, and I think St Bonaventure does get a at large bid. I think if St either St Bonaventure or St Louis, whoever makes it to Sunday, gets an at large bid. Now where my other th- two and three teams come, three my third and fourth team come in is that week that URI has, or not URI, that the NCAA has, or the A-10 has. Mark my words, whoever doesn't make it there to Sunday, VCU, St. Louis, St. Bonaventure, they are going to schedule a couple of non-conference games to boost their, uh, to boost their resumes. And I think it's going to be, you're going to see that all across the NCAA with teams on the bubble. And we talked about it with Bill, it just makes too much sense to me these teams want to get to the tournament and i think that's i think if st louis or st bonaventure are to lose on that saturday i think that is their only shot or vcu i think those their only shot is to schedule a game on tuesday thursday of that week to get into to get two more quality wins to get into the tournament but it also does have its its downside if you schedule those two games and you go out and lose then you're definitely not going but i think the risk is definitely worth the reward in that case.
0: So now I have a question for you. If Say, let, let's look at this bracket logically, right? So say the winner of the 8-9 game knocks out the Bonneys and St. Louis makes it to Saturday and then loses. Do you think that the teams like St. Bonaventure, St. Louis, those teams that need those wins, could schedule an 8-10 game against each other the week after?
1: I don't know what the rules about that would be, but I would certainly wouldn't put it past them, but I think you could I think St. Louis and St. Bonaventure and VCU could schedule a ge- schedule a game on Tuesday and Thursday. Vastly schedule at least a game Tuesday, game Thursday in that local area because I'm sure let's put let's say VCU for example in St. Louis and St. Bonaventure. You're all close to a very area of a lot of solid basketball teams right there you got Maryland right there you got Virginia you got West Virginia you got who else is in that area you got the New York teams that you could jet up to New York from you have Georgetown right there you have so many solid college basketball teams that could give you a nice resume booster not to mention wherever these conference tournaments are you could fly out there and put a game on the schedule real quick if a team is to lose I mean all the oh there's a bunch of college basketball teams out there. That are going to the conference tournaments that are scared, that are, they're feeling like they're going to be playing games back to back days. So I don't think the rest is going to be a worry. So who knows? We could see a bunch of those mid season tournaments next next week outside of these conference tournaments. And like we talked to Bill, we think it's a money maker, and it could be like we told, like we talked to Bill, ESPN could start this whole thing and. I think it's a moneymaker that I think the NCAA should very much invest in.
0: Yeah, and we'll, we will have to see what happens with that. But with that – Boy, that oh ends boy ep- would
1: I would love to see that.
0: <laughs> I agree with you. With that, that ends Episode 12 of Rudy Baseline. As we said, URI plays on Thursday, tomorrow, 3.30 p.m. against Dayton. That game on NBC Sports Network with the winner taking on VCU Friday at 3.30 also on NBC Sports Network. We will chat with you guys in two weeks after Selection Sunday, but don't forget that we do have the Tammy Reese episode releasing next Monday at 12 p.m., and you definitely don't want to miss that. We will chat with you guys in two weeks, and as always, go...